Welcome to Top 5, a show where we count things down from 5 to number 1, because that's how it goes. This week, listener request. <laughs> listener request. Hey. That's what it says here in this email. Hey. <laughs> how about how about you guys do your top five favorite tropes? And I was like, okay. <laughs> So why don't we start off with uh, with you, Rodrigo? And why don't why don't you share with us your number five favorite trope? Uh, my number five is um, robot sidekick. Ooh, robot sidekicks! Mm. Yeah, you really can't <laughs> you can't go wrong with uh, some sort of robot that is helpful in some way but uh, doesn't hog the spotlight. Um, you know, your R2-D2s, your Mr. Butler-trons. Yeah, your Bender um, uh, Benders. Yeah, see, Bender, <laughs> Bender's on the... Um, Bender's on the line, because there's, like, Futurama kind of slowly became about Bender. Yeah, he's not exactly helpful either. Yeah. Well, if your yeah. plan is to kill all the, all the humans... Yeah, Bender actually factors into another trope that oh, okay. uh, that is Ooh. farther up, but yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. My number five, Secret can't trope. go wrong with a little helpful robot. All right. Matthew, what do you have for your number five? Well, my number five is actually probably my favorite, but thematically speaking, it had to be number five because it is the five-man band. The five-man band is basically... Anytime your group of characters fall into the, the rough explanation, you got your leader, you got your Lancer, who is kind of like the leader, only he's like a second-in-command guy who's usually kind of opposite of the leader. You got your smart guy, who is often also you know the weak, nerdy guy. You got your big guy, who's usually also dumb. And then you've got, and this one's problematic, and I appreciate this, the chick so basically, that's the character who's really the heart of the group. And if you really look at the way this is, is put together, first of all, if you go on the internet, there are a lot of people who say that a lot of things are five-man bands when they're not. So I want you to know that if, you're, if your group has four members, it's not a five-man band. If it has six members, it's not a five-man band. Three, it's not a five-man band, except in as much as you have to count to three to get to five. Seven is right out. And I think the thing that's really wonderful about it is how varied it is, but how applicable it is to so many situations. Because, you know, we, we have many podcasts at Major Spoilers, and at least one of them features an honest-to-peat five-man band formation mm-hmm. in the, the critical hit uh, Void Saga with the, the five main characters. And it's really fascinating to see just how many places you get this five man band. And of course it's the basis of super Sentai. It's the basis of Gatchaman, which came to America as battle of the planets, which right. may have been one of the earliest superhero things I was ever really attached to. So you got to love a decent five man band, especially when you realize that it fits the Archie gang. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Now, Special shout out to Mati, a rare uh, five, <laughs> uh, a rare chick, a rare male chick in a exactly. five man band. 
the heart. I, I really feel like that fifth should be the heart rather yep. than the chick. But, you know, I didn't make the nomenclature, and I think the people that did may not have been thinking in terms of how douchey it sounded. Well, and, uh, you know, maybe they were. Maybe they were specifically calling it out that, you know. Could be. There you always have one girl. It's very rare to have a fight. Again, if you look at even a critical hit, we only have one girl. That's true. There you go. All right. Uh, My number five is one that you see a lot, and it's one that I like. Because it's Nazis getting their asses kicked. <laughs> I love it when you get to reference Indiana Jones. Yeah. Uh, the official quote or trope that you could put this in is the usual adversary or the villains by default trope. But man, there's something satisfying about uh, Indiana Jones Nazis. I hate those guys. And then he just goes in and clobbers them all upside the head and then everybody cheers and then their faces get melted off and then people cheer even louder and then they get stomped to the curb and then people yell and scream and yeah yell down with yeah. nazis ah my favorite trope of all time i hate well, those guys i hate those Remember guys the too Illinois nazis yeah those would be under the classification of <laughs> wacky nazis yeah but even so they get you know, three, oh, dropped yeah. from the top of the Chrysler building <laughs> <laughs> three times the height of the Chrysler building. Got to watch those overpasses exactly. kids. Da, All right. Da, 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 da. <laughs> we are at our number four and Rodrigo, what do you have for number four? Uh, my number four is a classic, classic trope. If you like comics, but it does make its way into other things as well. Uh, and that is a smart gorilla. Mm. Now, the great thing about the smart gorilla trope, uh, is that, and it doesn't have to be a gorilla. It can be some other sort of large ape. Um, but the the great thing about the smart gorilla trope is that it applies to both heroic smart gorillas and villainous smart gorillas. Right? Mm-hmm. For every uh, for every Winston, you have a gorilla Grodd. Yep. For every Abe, you have an ultra humanite in that particular series. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's always, always room in a team for a smart gorilla. Yeah, the thing I agree. that's cool about it is all of the DC heroes, all of the major DC heroes have a gorilla villain. Well, yeah, because that goes to that idea that um, uh, monkeys sell well. And if you put gorilla a monkey on the cover, books. yeah, if you put a monkey on the cover, it's going to sell super well. So you've got Monsieur Mala, you've got, um, uh, you've got Ursa, you've got that, Detective Chimp. The, Yep, the uh, detective chimp is not a villain, nor is he a gorilla. No, I'm just saying. Just as <laughs> there's the you know, monkeys on the cover, Gotham City. Yeah, uh, there's there's Sergeant Gorilla. There is oh, and this is one that most people don't remember. Giganta from the Wonder Woman series. Yeah, shaved shaved gorilla, a shaved gorilla <laughs> transformed wow. through Amazon magic into a giant woman. Yeah, yeah. True facts, kids. Matthew, what do you have for number four? My number four is one that I think is becoming more prevalent for a very obvious reason. We talk about the remix culture and we talk about, oh, well, this has to be this. But we also kind of fall into not only does everything have to be familiar, not only does it have to be a remix of something we've already seen, it has to be the building block of an extended universe. And so my number four is the sequel hook. Where your movie or your book or your, you know, your one shot comic ends 
but it leaves enough unresolved stuff out there that you know they want to make a sequel. You know that they could make a sequel. Doc Brown shows up in the DeLorean and goes, Marty, it's your kids! Or you have that moment where you get to the end of the episode and Spock's coffin is on the Genesis planet and the music swells and dun-dun-dun-dun, all of that stuff going on. Or uh, Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman ends Mm -hmm. with that big vault that has the Superman 2 symbol. Or Spider-Man coming back from the Ultimate Universe and going, hey, I wonder if there's a Miles Morales in our... Oh my god! The, the sequel hook is one of these ancient venerable tropes that for a long time was treated as kind of a, a negative thing. If you built a story like Buckaroo Banzai and ended it with Buckaroo Banzai will return, in some ways I think the public thought that it felt desperate. But in that, that post-Peter Jackson universe where Johnny Depp puts on a funny mustache and it's supposed to bring to build a six-movie uh, Mordecai franchise, the sequel hook is actually completely inescapable. And it's kind of fun to see just how big and how dumb people will go to try and make sure that the seeds are there. Because, you know, for my money, you can't beat the sequel hook at the end of the black hole where good and evil combine and half the team is in hell and half the team is in heaven. And Lord only knows what's going to happen. But I'll tell you one thing. The gold key comic won't make a lick of sense. And that's Mm. why the sequel hook is my number four. Mm -hmm. My number four. I was trying to track down how far back this goes. And I've got it traced down to at least the 1920s. And probably Ooh. before, because um, it really has with the rise of science fiction and, and speculative uh, fiction type stuff. It is uh, the trope that's called gone horribly wrong. And this is where someone, <laughs> because they think they're all knowing or because they think they want to open that door or because they think it's OK to create that weird science project, they've meddled in God's domain and something evil comes out of the hole or something, some monster is created that then has to be taken down. Ah, uh, and I think there is actually, um, I don't, who is the, um, really bad director guy? Uh, Ed forget Wood? Ed Wood. I think even in the end of one of his, he meddled in God's domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's, 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 uh, one of my favorite tropes meddling in God's domain, AKA <laughs> gone horribly wrong. You can't go, you, you can't go wrong by uh, meddling yep. in God's domain. It's just impossible. You know, it's fun. It, and it's really great when people use it in situations where it doesn't make any sense, because one of the biggest problems with Marvel comics, civil war was Sue Richards giving her husband, Mr. Fantastic. The, you have meddled in things that God's domain, Liberty blue speech. And I'm like, this is Reed freaking Richards. Yeah. This man does six impossible things, not before breakfast, but literally to make breakfast. And somehow you guys are trying to pull this out of your, out of your behind. And it just, it's not going to work. Meddling in God's domain. We have made it to our number threes already. And uh, that means Rodrigo, you have to share with us yet another trope. That is your favorite of five. Okay. Uh, Favorite trope three of five is. uh, I, I think. You know, all of these tropes have to have like the the parenthetical um, when executed properly, because, mm. you know, 
Um, I, I think we've all seen these tropes just massacred or, or done in a way that's like very terrible and annoying. Um, and uh, my number three, uh, when the villain joins the party, um, is one that, when executed properly, is great. Yes. Uh, but when executed poorly or too frequently, it can be kind of an issue. Um, uh, I think Dragon Ball Z is a classic example of both. Um, you know, the first time that like Piccolo turns around and he's like, okay, well, I hate you all, but this is also the planet that I live in, so I'm going to help you defend it. You're like, oh, that is cool. That guy is green and awesome. And then by the time, like, I don't know, like Frieza joins the party, you're like, well, maybe, maybe not this one. So, uh, yeah, th- there's, you know, lots of great examples. I, a lot of, uh, in fact, there's a literal trope, uh, which is the sixth ranger. A lot of uh, your sixth addition to the five-man band is often a former villain who uh, changes his ways or for some reason uh, ends up joining the, the good guys. Yeah. So uh, my, my number three, when, when the villain joins the party. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matthew, number three for you, yeah. please. I, I keep thinking of, of Spike and uh, Angel uh, yeah. as part yeah, of that absolutely. trope. Yeah. You know, Magus from Chrono Trigger. There's, there's yeah. a lot, there's a mm-hmm. lot of like well executed ones. Um, and, and a lot of ones where it was like, that was the plan all along, right? Zuko and Avatar, um, again, yeah. the Green Ranger and Power Rangers. Yep. And the, you know, the Green Ranger is actually coming from Super Sentai, which has a, a long history of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my number three actually is going to be near and dear to Steven's heart because it references my left his aorta? theory. Your left aorta. Yes. Yeah. Steven's left aorta, uh, is a trope. That's a good trope. Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually one that I you've mentioned repeatedly that everything goes better with one of these, and that is the rich idiot with no day job. Because when you when you're a superhero, if you're like say I don't know, you're having to dress up as the chicken at the clucky chicken, or you're having to work for a living. Your superhero adventuring becomes all complicated. But if you're just a millionaire genius playboy who doesn't have a job or anything that you have to do or any responsibilities or any people who really rely on you, because again, you're just some rich idiot, your superheroing career actually works better. And I think that in a lot of ways, it, it does go back to that golden age expectation of, you know, the rich people are coming to, to save us. And you get to the 50s and you're like, hey, well, let's just have a Batman in every country. And they're all rich idiots with no day jobs. And whatever, whatever language you say that in, you're fine. But it's really an interesting trope because the more you see it, the less it becomes heroic. Because in the 80 years of comics, you've had kind of a a change in the expectation of what it is to be super rich and how you live as a super rich person. But it's fascinating to me how many characters fall under the heading of, I'm Oliver Queen, I have 11 scribillion dollars, and also I spent five years on an island one week. You know, you have... (laughs) That's true, it happened. And he doesn't remember anything that happened on that island until it actually happens in the future. 
you know, and you have Iron Man, of course, is the quintessential example on in, in the big movie movie screens. But you have to have one of those guys. If you have a super team and you don't have a big, super rich guy with resources out the wazoo and nothing else, really, then you, you just don't have a superhero team. Yeah, there's there's definitely an obvious set of superhero tropes and you're like okay well your superhero team has to have that strong guy and that like blaster guy right that like berserker guy maybe but there's like the secondary part where it's like you have to have a boy scout you have to Mm -hmm. have a rich idiot with no job you have to Um, have a hothead yeah you have to have maybe a robot or like very fish out of water kind of guy yep you know, it's you, like you, you need all of those sort of secondary like personality and like backstory tropes to have like a, a successful uh, superhero team. Yeah. And my number three kind of ties right on with with that discussion, because once you have that superhero team together, mm-hmm. they have to do a power walk. Oh, Oh, I love a good power walk. My number three favorite trope is the power walk. Now, I know it's gotten cheesy over the years. But, uh, you know, whether it is a regular walk of a group of people towards the camera or whether it's that super, super slowed down version of it or whether it is the parody that has come up again and again and again. When you get an ensemble cast walking towards the camera, you know everything about them, how they present themselves, how they interact with one another, whether they're having a good time, whether that explosion behind them is really part of the story or whether it's just there for effect. Man, you can't go wrong with a good power walk. And we need more of those in this day and age. Yeah. Yeah. That's my number three. Number two. Rodrigo, what is your number two? Uh, My number two also fits into that uh, ensemble cast uh, super group thing. And that's the roll call. Mm -hmm. I I love a good roll call. Um, And there's lots of good permutations of it you know it's like if you remember the intro to the 90s x-men cartoon like nobody was saying anything but like guys were flying by their names mm-hmm. yeah um whatever you want from me but oh sorry the get those confused you can have it that way you can have you know the the G.I. Joe thing where it's a straight up roll call. You can have the extended version mm-hmm. of uh, Steven Universe uh, intro song where each of them not just where n- not only do the characters mention their names, but they also articulate what they're fighting for. Yes. Um, uh, the opening of classic mystery science theater. Exactly. Exactly. Cambot. Yep. Gypsy. Hi, and also girl. robots. Um, I'm different. <laughs> yeah, definitely a good roll call can get you right into it, um, and uh, keep you keep you interested at least for a little while until the until the writing kicks in. <laughs> uh, that's a good one, um, Matthew. What is your number two? My number two is related to yours and Rodrigo's only in as much as it's not actually related to it, but it does in fact have the, the, you know, similarity of occurring in fiction and it's best described or rather, I think the best example of it is a moment when 
a handsome blonde man turns to the screen and says to one of the characters, and by extension us, because he's looking directly at the metaphorical camera, do it, Dan, I'm not a Republican serial villain. I did it 35 minutes ago. And they, they refer to that in the parlance as the wham line. It's a line of dialogue that changes the story and it brings everything that you've seen so far together and makes you question exactly what it is that you're reading and what has happened. I mean, there's a moment in um, The Blackest Night where all of the Green Lanterns are being killed and coming back from the dead as Black Lanterns and most of the heroes are dead because they've been resurrected in their Black Lanterns and a green ring is seen flying away from Mogo and we see that ring fly down to somebody and the ring says, Thal Sinestro of Korrigar. And it's like, oh! Sinestro's yeah. a green lantern. And then it's yeah. like, then it's followed up by wake me up before you go, go the yeah, wham or, line. Exactly. Or that, that thing where reverse flash says, Barry, I didn't do anything. You're the villain today. Or in that same storyline where Barry's working with Batman and all of a sudden he realizes, wait, you're Thomas Wayne. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. It's that moment that would get a huge stinger or like a scare chord if you were actually in the movies. But it's really wonderful when it's executed well and you have that moment that changes everything. And they did it entirely with setup and that one second of dialogue and then you're like oh my god and that's that by the way is part of the reason why people love alan moore for all of the problems of alan moore the man is an expert at that wham line and if you read through his works i mean everything he has ever written that i have really really enjoyed has one of those moments in it it's fascinating to go through and read it very cool uh you know it is one thing to think that you are the center of the universe it's another thing entirely to have this confirmed by an ancient prophecy. I am talking about my number two, the chosen one. You're the best. Hurrah! Yes. Yes. I mean, there's something, I mean, we all want to think that we are someone special in the universe and maybe that we are the one that's going to save the day, save the universe, become the one, the last Jedi, the, you know, the Hal the, Jordan, the, the Superman, the Neo, the avatar. The Avatar. Yep. The Jerk. Yeah, even that one. I mean, he saves yep. the universe, right? Created those little tiny glasses that got everybody's eyes crossed. Right. crossed. Yeah. And I'm going to leave and I'm taking this and this plant and this chair. <laughs> but I, I do like that because through this character of the Chosen One, whoever he or she may be, uh, the audience, the reader, the the viewer, whoever gets to experience what it would be like if they were the chosen one or see those adventures happen. So I think there's something really kind of important about that idea of the chosen one. And so it's, it's my number two uh, favorite trope because I think it serves a bigger part in uh, kind of stroking that, that little ego part of your ego that rests in the back of your brain saying, but I'm the chosen one. So there you go. That is my number two. Rodrigo, we have made it all the way to our number one favorite trope, and everyone is on the edge of their seats waiting for you to share yours. So let's not keep them waiting any longer, because I know that they have listened this long, and they're waiting 
just waiting, waiting, Matthew, waiting to get to our number one <laughs> top five favorite tropes this week on the top five podcast. Rodrigo, <laughs> your number one is being brought to you this week by our fine patrons at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Uh, sign up, get access to a whole bunch of other groovy things. Make sure that shows like this continue far into the future. Maybe even get a cool t-shirt or two, depending yeah. on how long you've been a patron. It's all can be found at patreon.com slash major spoilers. Now, Rodrigo, people have been waiting anxiously for like 20 minutes now for this number one to appear. So I think we better make sure that this number one is the best. So, Rodrigo, what is your number one <laughs> top five favorite trope? You know, that's really amazing because my number one favorite trope is generating sus- suspense through advertising. <laughs> that's amazing. No, 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 it's not. Um, my number one is uh, a trope that I wish didn't need to be recognized as a trope. Um, and, and that's the action girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really enjoy, uh, narratives that are action oriented and have women as the protagonists, because even now they're kind of rare, you know, it's like, yeah, for every, um, uh, tomb Raider and Witchblade and, uh, you know, VIP whatever else. and Abby Chase. Yep, what, yep, just whatever. Um, you have Ray. You have a dozen or so new narratives that are centered around dudes, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's it's nice to find a good, solid, action-oriented thing that either prominently features um, a women of action like uh, the aforementioned Steven Universe or, you know, most Super Sentai groups. Um, as long as it's written correctly. Because, of course, the worst possible thing is a poorly written action girl who is like, yeah, you think I can't do it because I'm a girl? Constantly. <laughs> or, you know, who just gets immediately damseled as soon as, you know, she tries to, like, kick the ogre and the ogre like snatches her and runs away and you're like, Oh, now we have to save her as the worst. Um, (laughs) hopefully someday, uh, this trope will be, uh, an unnecessary uh, moniker. But for now, I think we still need to recognize the action girl. Very good. Very, very good. Uh, Matthew, what do you have for your number one? Now keep in mind, people have uh, been waiting this entire time. So please make it a good one with your number one. I always make them all good. My number one is actually one that I personally dearly love. And I think there's a reason for that. This is actually one of the tropes where we actually do have a time and a date and a place of when it was coined, even though the trope itself predates it in the year 2007, a film critic named Nathan Rabin actually coined the term manic pixie dream girl. Mm -hmm. And when you look at your classic manic pixie dream girl, 
or when you're me and you look at the classic manic pixie dream girl, it's some of your favorite characters. Uh, it's Victoria from how I met your mother. Definitely a manic pixie dream girl to some degree. I think in universe, certainly Harley Quinn is trying to be a manic pixie dream girl to the Joker. Certainly suicide squad. Harley Quinn is. And when you look at this, this trope of, you know, the quirky young woman who comes in and teaches a staid person or a staid universe or, you know, it, it actually happens in two Wong Fu. There's a trio of manic pixie dream girls played by John Leguizamo and Patrick Swayze and, uh, Wesley Snipes. And you have this character who breaks people out of their shells by giving Zoe Deschanel a career. No, wait. I mean, I, I was I was gonna say that uh, you know when you were like oh this or this and I was like or every any character Zoe Deschanel has ever played. <laughs> Literally like, last night I watched uh, for the first time Five Hundred Days of Summer. Oh because yeah, because it, it was on. Example. Yeah, yeah, and Zach has always said how he either loved or hated that film. I wasn't really listening closely, but he talked about it a lot. And I sat and I watched it, and I'm like, this is like just note perfect right oh, down the line oh yeah yeah and then and then you get to the end of it and they have just that little twist where she decides no she doesn't want him at all and then she goes off and marries another dude and i'm like oh that's almost like a happy ending for her because she doesn't have to spend her life you know writing a vespa and, and teaching gregory peck to take the stick out of his ass but you also have that that just the expectation that somehow and this is this is the problem that really came down to it nathan has said that he's going to disavow the term because it's actually become a dumping ground for any character that we don't like any female character that's too quirky or too pixie we just throw into this thing and say well it's a manic pixie dream girl so it's stupid and useless and that's really not the point. The point is you have this character whose entire dramatic uh, raison d'etre, I don't speak French, um, is to make someone else happier or better or you know get them over their dead wife or their weird career or the stick up their butt. And it's really fascinating to see the breakdown of how this works and how many cartwheels and Betty Page bangs and, you know, floofy skirts and weird polka dot outfits you can get into it. Actually, I think Trillion may be the only thing I've ever seen Zoe Deschanel in where she wasn't pure manic pixie dream girl. I mean, she's done other stuff. She has. Mm -hmm. It's it's weird because in uh, in New Girl, Mm -hmm. you know, she's the protagonist and it's hard to to. Like the 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 point of the manic pixie is that she is sort of she has to pull on someone else, right? right. That's that's kind of the the criticism and the core of the character is that they exist for the sake of someone else. So it's like, right. can you really be a manic pixie as a protagonist? And you look at Zoe Deschanel in New Girl, and she sure is trying because Jess is a really quirky character. Mm-hmm. Um, so assuming that there are episodes that come from like the perspective of any of the guys that she hangs out with, I, I think she would qualify, but mm-hmm. since she's the protagonist, I'm, I'm not sure where the judges fall on that. Mm. She does end up in the situation of the show due to a wacky, quirky mix up. Yep. And she sticks around and makes all of their lives better. That is true. Mm. I, I think it counts. Yeah. There you go. Uh, my number one, 
Man, I do hate. Which has to be the best number one so far. It has to be the best number one so far because it has to deal with the mirror universe. No! Yeah, I love the mirror universe trope where suddenly you turn around and everyone that you know is suddenly the opposite of what you expect them to be. Rodrigo is evil. Your mom is evil. Matthew is surprisingly nice. He's shaved his face. Ah, the mirror universe is probably the best trope ever invented. And, you know, we get that mirror, mirror or the mirror universe from the mirror, mirror episode of Star Trek. Uh, And uh, man, I just I just dig it. There's there's something about that. I mean, you can play it for laughs as uh, we bring it back around to Futurama. You can play it all serious and scary like in Star Trek or other Star Trek properties. Um, uh, you can turn it on its ear just a little bit, like the uh, time that uh, the South Park kids discovered the mirror universe. There's so many cool things that you can do with the mirror universe. (laughs) And that's why it is my number one top five favorite trope. Uh, Do you guys have any, you said I'm the evil twin. (laughs) No, you're not the evil twin. I'm just saying that the evil you, the opposite you. Is uh-huh. is nice and knows how to use a razor uh-huh. from Harry's. Harry's.com. Use that code Harry's. critical com. hit. Use that code critical hit at checkout. Um, I don't know what the promo is this week. I know it's critical hits. So go over there and use it. Uh okay. I think that wraps up. Do you guys have any <laughs> almost almost rans or also rans? I don't know if it has a name, but I love um when you're watching a show and they're like, welcome to Southern Illinois. And in the background, you see the mountains of Southern yeah. California. Yeah. That's a great or one. Or Toronto. I, I happen to love them. Yeah. Um, Toronto's everywhere. I like, uh, like change of perspective episodes. Just by far, my favorite episodes of Doctor Who are the ones that barely feature the Doctor. You know, the, mm, like mm-hmm. the... Um, the ELO episode or oh, blink. Yes. Yep. Uh, those, you know, and it's like, they're, they're enjoyable because you have the whole rest of the series in context, right? Just watching those, they don't necessarily tell you much, but when you have everything together, those episodes are like really refreshing and interesting. So it's mm-hmm. nice to see, to, to kind of follow another character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like the, um, I don't. I rarely see it, so I don't know if you can call it a trope. But I've seen it in multiple media where there mm-hmm. is a an item. Doesn't matter what it is. The one that always comes to my mind. I think it's um, what was the Canadian Mountie show where he comes to Chicago or Detroit or wherever, and he's due south. Due south. There's an episode of Due South where there's like I can't remember if it's a piece of paper or a matchbook with a number on it, but it keeps you know, flowing through the environment and each time it lands, someone else picks it up and somehow that is tied to the bigger story that you're supposed to find out about. And it's not until Mm -hmm. the very end when he finds this piece of paper that all those other threaded stories that you just kind of saw bits and pieces of all come together and you're like, ah, that works. And I've seen this multiple times with a number of different items, piece of paper, a book, a, you know, a feather, whatever it may be. And I, and I like that as well, but I don't see it enough to where I, I think you could call it a trope because doesn't it have to be something that happens well, like quite often? It doesn't necessarily have to be often, but it does have to be something that's codified enough that you can come up with examples. Mm-hmm. I love the, the, uh, the Ferris wheel date 
mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. your couple's trapped on a Ferris wheel. And, oh, that's how you know they're really in love because they're on a Ferris wheel together. Yeah. Um, I now I can't remember because when you said that, it made me think of the movie Four Rooms. And I could have sworn that there was a name for the trope that ties into four rooms. But yeah, there's also I mean, I've seen it done even with time. Um, It's I think it's called Midnight. I I think it's Jim Jaramusch who did it. But what Mm -hmm. happens is they take a look at what happens at midnight Mm -hmm. at Greenwich Mean Time in like four different places around the world. So while it may be midnight Greenwich mean time, it's like 2 a.m. in Oslo and it's, Mm. you know, 6 a.m. and somewhere else. And they just follow these stories for one hour of what happens in that one hour time period for these random people. And it's all tied into the fact that it's, you know, one night on earth. That's the name of it. One night on earth. So there you go. All right, everybody. um, Oh, go ahead, Rodrigo. Oh, I like uh, in time travel stories Mm -hmm. when the, protagonist sees themselves and basically sees a scene play out that will be relevant later. Mm -hmm. Right. And then eventually they make their way all the way back to where they were and realize what happened. Right. It's like some, some time travel fiction are completely like, that's the linchpin of it. Yeah. And some others, it's just kind of one of the weird time things that happens in there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Rodrigo's uh, repeated example of how if you come from another country where another language is spoken, you cannot say hello or friend oh, yep. in English. That's no one knows or, how to say it. Or yes. Yes. Hello, friend, and yes are the hardest <laughs> things to say in English. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. All right, that wraps it up for this installment of Top 5. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to our Top 5 Favorite Tropes. Here's where you come into the show and be part of this fun experience, head over to Majorspoilers.com in the comment section for this episode. We want you to list your five favorite tropes. Maybe you need to explain it a little bit so everyone knows what it is. If you need to put a link to TV tropes, go ahead and do that. Uh, But explain to us why you put this on your top five favorite tropes list. We will read it. Listeners, other listeners will read it. Why? Because everyone loves a list and we will talk with you next time. This podcast is copyright 2018 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.